Hey everyone, it's Marielle. And before we get to the show, I want to warn you. What you are about to hear contains explicit language, adult themes, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the show. Sporty Spice with my sweatpants and sports bro. If you want to be my lover, gotta get with my fans. When to become one. Have they already done their tour? I don't know. I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, what would I wear? Uh, you could wear that. <laughs> right. I was like, I would totally go with Sporty Spice. Sporty Spice. I'm Ron Burgundy. Hello. Is anyone there? You're live on the air. I had this Nancy Drew game one time that one of the challenges was to figure out the channels for this one I think radio I remember that. Was something? that the winter one? I don't remember. I think this one was the one at the the Scarlet Hand. Oh. Um, I don't remember, but this reminded me of it just now. Dude. Hello, is anyone there? Those I fucking loved those Nancy Drew games, but I could not play them at night or by myself. Oh, I man. That's why I didn't play them. I got scared. Oh, they some of them were really... It's frightening. Things would jump out at you. Yeah. There was one with the ghost. The ghost would, like, jump out and, like, cross mirrors and shit. Ugh. It was so scary, but so fun. Yeah. You are super into those. I still was, am. Yeah. I would used to... <laughs> I won't lie. I still play some Nancy Drew from time to time. Do they still make them? Yeah. They absolutely do. I should play all the old games that I have won. Um, on senior detective mode because it's junior mode and senior Uh, mode. Then I just do junior mode because it's easy. Yeah. Hey, everybody. What's up? Welcome to the Women of Death Row podcast. We're going to tell you some more stories. Thank you for choosing this one. Of all the ones out there, (laughs) because there are many, and there has been a surge. If you uh, are new to this, as we are... I'm Marielle, and across from me is my sister, and her name is Amanda. <sighs> yes. So that's right. her voice. Say something. That is my name, Amanda. I. Yep. Guess who's older? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can't see us. Not a visual medium. So you went first last time. I did. Was there anything last, last week time? was so long ago. I think there's only one thing I remembered that I wanted to catch myself on, and it's, again, the same shit that I corrected the first time. But whenever I said I wanted to formally address him, I said formerly. Oh. And I was like, damn it, I ruined my own joke with misspeaking. <laughs> it happened. Formerly known as, I meant formally. Formally. I was like, maybe no one's I here will catch. I think you were foreshadowing. That's right. Because the impeachment was announced this week, yeah. right? The impeachment something? In- impeachment inquiry. Inquiry. Which, I mean, it took four years to impeach Nixon. And there's only been, what, three or four presidents who've ever had an impeachment inquiry open. And I honestly, like... It's 2019. We're about to have another election. He's not going to get impeached, but that sends a strong message. It's almost like more symbolic. It's like, you are such a piece of shit that we now have more than enough votes to start investigating to impeach you. This impeachment inquiry is more symbolic. It's just so fucking crazy, man. 
That's a different podcast. I'm going to shout out a podcast. The Women of Moeller, she wrote. Moeller as in the Moeller Report. So the Moeller Report, they've started that one at the beginning of his presidency. And now, since the Moeller Report has come out, redacted and whatever, so now they still put out a weekly episode and then they also are breaking down the Moeller Report. And so every two weeks, or maybe every week, they do a I don't even know. It's probably going to be like an 18-part series of the Mueller report. So I think they're on part like seven right now. No, they're like on part 16. Yeah, I'm on their Patreon too because I just can't wait. And I, But they also now, I'm obsessed. They have the Daily Beans. Mm -hmm. And so that's like their daily news thing. And it's so fucking awesome. Yes, they do amazing research. They they tell you what you need to know, and they break it down in such a great way, and they're entertaining and funny. They break it down in a way that you can understand. Digestible, and digest. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's, just, I mean, it's so much legal jargon, and the average person, the average citizen is just gonna be like, I have to go to work and pay my bills. I can't pay attention to this shit. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's like, he's done so many things that now, like, you can't even. Maybe I should just. Anyways. So you went first last time. Yes. Alrighty. Let's get to the real reason why we're here. Tell a tale of a true story of a woman who is still on death row. Her name, Brittany Marlowe Holberg. Some people might know who she is, which I'll get to why you might. But anyways, probably don't. Brittany Marlowe Holberg. Yeah, but... Her story is cray cray. So she was born January 1st, 1973 in Amarillo, Texas. She had a single mom who she later called a, quote, hippie drug addict. Her father was a heroin addict and most of her childhood he was in prison. So life with her mother was unstable, to say the least. Her mom began dating a heavy drug user named John Schwartz. They married and then divorced four times. Wow. The same person? Yeah, the same fucking John Schwartz. Brittany was mostly left home alone, sometimes for days, while her mom and stepdad were off on a drug bender together. Oh, man. Yeah. She was a frequent victim of violence and multiple sexual assaults. The first time she was sexually assaulted, she was only a five-year-old little girl. And hasn't been confirmed, but there were suspicions her stepdad did this to her or an unnamed babysitter. Mm. Probably the fucking stepdad. But there's no record of investigation or police report. So, unstable home life. Childhood plagued with trauma. In 1989, 13 years old, like as if it wasn't already bad enough, Brittany was attacked by a group of men while walking home from school. She tried to fight back, but she was a child and outnumbered by these fucking men. And so after this brutal attack, she began spending time at her grandmother's because she didn't... She felt... Like, that would be a little safer. She didn't officially move out, but saw less and less of her mom and stepfather. And by 16, she had enough of that environment that her mom was providing, and she announced that she was dropping out of high school and ran away to elope with her 17-year-old boyfriend, Ward Holberg. Yeah. So they drove to California and quickly married. She wanted a fresh start and the opposite kind of relationship and life than she had growing up, so she wanted a drug-free, stable household. But <sniffs> two years later, she became pregnant, and on August 27th, 1992, she gave birth to a daughter, Mackenzie. 
but her marriage was crumbling. She's only 19 at this point. Ward had violent outbursts, and they divorced before her daughter Mackenzie's first birthday. Mm. And then Ward took Mackenzie to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Brittany felt like her only option now was to return to Amarillo, Texas. Damn. Yeah. And then this is where everything really kind of begins the end for her. So she uh, suffered a knee injury and was prescribed painkillers. Oh, no. And by the time she ran out of pills, she was 20 years old and had a full-blown addiction. And these painkillers were like a trap, especially after losing two families. She was homeless. She turned to sex work like for survival and to support her addiction that she has no control over. No. Opioids are hard to get off of. It's an epidemic. And this is... 90s. 90s. Brittany and her aunt developed a scam to get more painkillers. They faked severe tooth pain and would each take turns going to different dentists and then split the prescriptions. So now there's ways to track all that. Yeah. Good. Shit. Well, well, good until you find out heroin's easier to get and cheaper. Yeah. Fucking fuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just responded flippantly without even thinking that. The dentists began catching on and then cut them off. Brittany turned to street drugs to self-medicate, especially cocaine, because it also helped with her withdrawal symptoms. But her way of getting these drugs starts getting riskier. In April 93 of 1993, she committed crimes like forging checks and opening lousy credit cards. She stole a car from her mom and a gun from her stepdad. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then she began sex work again, and on at least one occasion, a man brutally attacked her, beating her until she needed to be hospitalized. And after she was released, she continued her spiral. So she's still homeless. She has now a pattern of being arrested and released, and sometimes she would be only free for like a day and be arrested again. So during one jail sentence in the summer of 1996, Brittany, now 23 years old, had a chance for sobriety when she met some visiting missionaries. They encouraged her to try rehab, so she enrolled in the program that the jail had. And these missionaries became very supportive of her detox process. They let her know she was loved and that she was valued and she'd never had that kind of emotional support. So being inspired by the evangelical missionaries, yeah, Brittany began to practice prayer and attending Bible studies just as often as she did. She was in prison. Yeah. And then, so she was Bible, doing Bible study just as often as she was addressing her underlying causes of her addiction. So, according to Lee Weiner, who wrote for the American Psychological Association, that most often due to the lack of funding and societal factors, a lot of jail programs lack evidence-based practices, which leads to backsliding into substance abuse. So, she left the rehab program squeaky clean, and within a month, she was back on cocaine. By mid-1996, 23-year-old Brittany was once again homeless, completely engulfed in her addiction. She's a survival sex worker, but she didn't hit rock bottom until November 13th, 1996, when she met 80-year-old A.B. Towery. 
Towery lived alone in an Amarillo apartment despite his old age. He received frequent visits, and he got help with the upkeep and financial support from his adult children. He was super into cars. His son, Russell, said that his dad loved restoring Model Ts, and he collected old parts. They say he was a loving and generous father who would even still go on family trips with them. However, he had a dark side, history of domestic violence, and he even threatened his own son with a knife during a disagreement. So Russell planned to buy his dad a car, and when his dad heard the plan, he was like, nah, just give me the cash. So Towery had $1,400 in cash on him the day he encountered Brittany. Before I get into the events of November 13th, 96, just know there are a lot of disparities between the police's account of the events that unfolded and Brittany's story. So here's the official record of events. It's, it's crazy. A.B. Towery lived walking distance from an Albertsons grocery, which he walked to that day around 4.30 p.m. on November 13th. He crossed paths with Brittany on his way home. She was loitering in the apartment complex's courtyard after a 10-day cocaine binge and couldn't even remember the last time she'd slept. So she's feeling the symptoms mm. of withdrawal. Brittany asked Tower if she could come inside and claimed she needed to make a phone call. So once in the apartment, she demanded he give her all his money. He refused. Brittany began attacking him. She tried wrestling his wallet from his pocket, thinking she could easily overpower an old guy. Maybe her... Withdrawal symptoms were so intense she wasn't thinking at all. She was caught off guard when he put up a fight, and this went on for 45 minutes. Like, I would have been oh on the floor, God. passed out, like, I'm tired. An 80-year-old fighting yeah. for 45 minutes? Scratching, Damn. biting, hitting each other, and her brutality began escalating. And according to the Mayo Clinic, when people are faced with a threat, they exhibit a fight-or-flight instinct. Mm -hmm otherwise known as a, an acute stress response. And the part of our brain which controls this has no way to distingu distinguish a real threat or some stressful situation. So she's overwhelmed with a massive amount of adrenaline. Even though she initiated the fight, physiologically, she's responding as if she's the one being attacked. And at one point, Towery stumbled from the living room to the kitchen, which was a deadly mistake. Brittany chased him spotted the heavy cookware and sharp knives. She grabbed a frying pan, smashed it into his head. He remained standing, though. He must have been a big guy. So she took it further when she spotted a hammer and bashed it against his skull, and he still didn't fall. So now she grabs a grapefruit oh, no. knife and starts stabbing him. Finally, now he went down, and blood starts gushing from his torso, but she felt like, I need to finish what I've started. So she thought this old man has to die. She continued stabbing him with a butcher knife, a paring knife, and two forks. He was still conscious, but now fading and still trying to fight her off. He was able to bat the knives away, which left shallow cuts on Brittany's arms and stomach. He tried to run away, stumbling to the door for help, bleeding profusely. But then Brittany drags him back oh, into God. the apartment, not letting him escape. He becomes lightheaded from blood loss and blows to the head. He staggered to the living room and collapsed. Now he's unconscious. But Brittany still didn't feel like she was finished, so she picked up a living room lamp and shoved it down his throat until he choked and died. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking brutal. Just as if... Out of her mind. Yeah. Just like a frenzy killing. But then she, she said that she felt like somehow like she's got a sense of calmness and that's probably because like you know your adrenaline starts wearing off so 
she calmed down, assessed the apartment. Everything was in disarray. It was a bloody scene. She was covered in blood. So she showered in the apartment and then she raided his closet so she wouldn't be in blood-soaked clothes. And she dressed in his clothes. She dressed in the dead man's clothes, the, the man she just killed. So now her focus was to get away with murder. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she was pleasantly surprised to find the $1,400 in his wallet and didn't care at all about the bloodstains that covered the money. She took it and then just dropped the wallet on his body. She raided his medicine cabinet but didn't find anything of interest, so she decided to leave an hour after she first arrived. She waved down a friendly couple to hitch a ride and then tipped them with $200 in blood-soaked bills. It startled the driver, but they accepted them anyway. She had the couple drop her off at a drug house and immediately spent hundreds on cocaine. She spent the night getting high in a hotel room and trying to forget the events. I'm not sure when police arrived on the scene, but when they entered their apartment, what they found shocked them. And police obviously thought it was a robbery gone wrong. Neighbors told police that they last saw Towery enter his apartment with a woman, and Brittany immediately became suspect number one. So when she came down from her bin, she fled to Tennessee, where she continued doing drugs and sex work. Three months later, an episode of America's Most Wanted aired, giving a profile on Brittany and her crime. It aired three times, and the tip line received over 300 calls about Brittany. Soon, investigators knew she could be found in Tennessee. Hmm. Yep. on Brittany. Yeah, man. Jesus. On February 17th, 1997, at 24 years old, Brittany was exiting a Memphis McDonald's where police were waiting for her. She didn't resist. After being arrested, Brittany placed a call to her mother, and once she was given an opportunity, she admitted to murder in tears over the line, not realizing these calls are recorded and could construe this as a confession of murder. So now here's Brittany's account of how it went down. She tells a wildly different story, and and what what do you think she says? She didn't do it. Well, no. What would you oh, say? Oh, he was going to rape her. Right. Self-defense. Yeah, self-defense. So according to Brittany. <laughs> I guess wrong. <laughs> uh, so according to Brittany, he was one of her longtime regulars from sex work. And she said he had been referred to her by a fellow sex worker known as Green Eyes. So she claims that he'd hired her on the night of November 13th, 1996. And while working, Brittany pulled out a crack pipe to take a hit. She had no idea he was going to have such a visceral reaction. And without warning, she claims that Tauri became consumed with rage and struck her in the back of the head with a frying pan. Brittany grabbed anything she could find to defend herself, first the same frying pan, then the various knives and even forks. And when none of this slowed the murderous rage of Tauri, she grabbed the lamppost and shoved it down his throat and fled because she was too scared to think straight. Police obviously knew this wasn't accurate and she was lying due to the nature of the crime scene and how it was inconsistent with self-defense. Their blood spatter didn't match her version of events. A pool of blood by the door proved Tauri tried to get away because the pool of blood with drag marks. So it showed he was being dragged back into the apartment. Did she have anything on her head? I think I... No, she didn't have. So she barely had any injuries. Mm-hmm. If her version of events were accurate, she would have been severely wounded. So investigators asked Brittany to recount her story again, this time with the truth. According to an article in Amarillo Globe News, Brittany told eight different versions of the story about what happened in the apartment. However, she consistently insisted that she was acting in self-defense. The police didn't buy it. 
They knew she took the time to shower, raid his apartments for valuables and prescription drugs, and took the over $1,000 from his wallet. Witnesses, including the couple who gave her a ride, said that Brittany was calm when leaving the apartment and didn't seem like someone scared or fleeing for her life after fighting off an attacker. After questioning, police charged Brittany with capital murder. Brittany was facing the death penalty. So her defense went to various truck stops around Memphis looking for character witnesses. Man. They interviewed sex workers and hoped to find someone willing to come and testify in court. However, these efforts were not successful. Likely because these women were reluctant to cooperate with the same judicial system that criminalizes them. Gee. So her trial began in spring 1998. She's 25 years old. I can't fucking imagine, man. So the prosecution team's focus was to poke holes in her story and disprove her self-defense claims. No one was able to locate Green Eyes, the sex worker who supposedly introduced Brittany and Towery. The prosecution argued that Brittany's crime was premeditated and she'd lied about the phone call to get into his apartment and that he was never a client at all. Towery's family said that he was an old man and the necessary parts of his anatomy were unable to perform. So, and I'm just like, please, there's so many pills for that. I mean, right. wait, in the 90s, sure, it was Viagra something, I'm sure. Maybe. They've probably had that shit around. I mean, as long as birth control, probably. Probably longer. They care more about dicks. So his sons visit him every day, and his children couldn't imagine when their elderly father would even have enough time or free time for a rendezvous. Tell me about it. So he was an 80-year-old family man, which most thought isn't the sort to pick up a sex worker. I say that's the exact type, too. (laughs) An 80-year-old man who's alone? What the fuck do you think he's going to do? That's probably easier than him looking up porn. Right. Like, please. So they're very naive. Brittany's defense attorney disagreed and called two sex workers for testimony, and both claimed they'd taken Towery as a client in the past. <laughs> right. But prosecutors pointed out that one of these women had once been arrested for giving the police false information in another case. They then tried to discredit the other witness due to her criminal history, of course. A defense psychiatrist took the stand. After evaluating Brittany since her arrest, she diagnosed Brittany with PTSD and... What I think this now isn't even in existence anymore. Battered woman syndrome. Did they? Oh, no. Is that even anything anymore? No. Because I feel like that's the same as PTSD. Yeah, that's the same thing. <laughs> it's just one is gendered. Both are consistent with her self defense claim. People who suffer from PTSD deal with anxiety that manifests after a traumatic event. I know all about it. Well, <laughs> and look at her childhood. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's not exclusively a diagnosis for war veterans. Civilians can develop PTSD, especially after things like car crashes, assault, Mm -hmm. abuse, childhood Mm -hmm. like hers. Prosecution wanted to paint Brittany to the jury as a cold-blooded and ruthless killer who could just walk away after murdering someone and feel no guilt. But with a diagnosis of PTSD, the defense implied that Brittany was a survivor still grappling with the trauma of Towery's violent attack. The second diagnosis of battered woman syndrome, which is a form of PTSD, I guess I wrote Mm. that down somewhere, suggested that Brittany and Towery had an ongoing relationship and this wasn't the first time he'd been violent, which could be the case. Could be the case. She brutally murdered him, though. Like, he has a lamp coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Out of his fucking throat. Throat. So, of course, she could also be suffering from her life from abuse, but her defense team focused on her relationship with Towery. 
And this narrative failed to persuade the jury, and her trial ended on March 13, 1998, and she was found guilty. At the age of 25, Brittany was sentenced to the death to death by legal injection. Legal injection? <laughs> I wrote legal <laughs> injection. Oh, God damn I'm it. Ron Burgundy? She'll write anything you put on that teleprompter. <laughs> <laughs> by lethal injection. In an interview, Brittany explained she can't even describe what it was like to have someone say, you are going to die. She said, it's words. You feel helpless, numb, and almost as if your emotions shut you down. Brittany entered death row at a prison in Gatesville, Texas. Yikes. She said it felt like she was dreaming and couldn't believe she was going to die for what she did. For weeks, she was in a trance and barely able to process what was happening around her. Um, Patrick Hudson of the University of Edinburgh's law department described a condition called the death row phenomenon. While death row inmates continue to file appeals, their internment continues to grow longer. So these convicts spend more time trying to grapple with the psychological horror of knowing they will die and have to live in the horrible conditions of death row even longer. And anti-death penalty activists say that the death row phenomenon is a human rights violation. Not only did Brittany have to deal with this, but she was also living day-to-day with petty abuses that are common for inmates. In a statement to the press, Brittany stated, You would not believe the treatment we are given. Patients are brought in at all times of the day and night in various stages of hysteria or fear or anger. We have been subjected to numerous gassings. We have witnessed numerous women who are obviously out of their senses have excessive use of force applied to them, such as slamming them to the floor and against walls. I won't even begin to put a name or number on how many nights I have sat up listening to some poor woman scream out as officers sit around laughing or making fun of her. Early on in her sentence, Brittany went through the prison rehab program to finally break her addiction. Her number one motivation was her daughter, Mackenzie, who at the time was only five years old. Where was she at? I guess she was with the dad. Where did she? Ta- where did he take her? I forgot. At Tulsa. Tulsa. So Brittany couldn't undo her actions of killing a man, nor her death sentence, but she could still try to be a better role model. And Brittany finally managed to get clean and stay clean. Brittany has spoken out about prisoners' rights and the abuses she personally witnessed or experienced, and she campaigned to have the death penalty repealed. She spoke to any press who would listen. And this is fun. In January 2007, Maxim published an article titled, Babes Behaving Badly. Oh, my God. And 34-year-old Brittany was included among the so-called hottest women in prison. Yeah. If it wasn't even more dehumanizing. Mm Mm-hmm. But she said, you know, this helped her. I'm sure it Now did. this is what kind of helped boost her to be like that poster child for anti-death penalty advocacy. Mm. On November 29, 2000, a judge overturned a request for her appeal. Several years later, in May 2013, now 40-year-old Brittany once again filed for an appeal, denied again. But Brittany and her lawyers continued their pursuit for an appeal. In a total of 21 years, she has filed three appeals, which is the maximum allowed at the state level. She's mm-hmm. also made numerous claims at the federal level. To date, she's not been able to overturn her death sentence successfully. Her legal case, including her appeals, cost the state of Texas more than $400,000, and this will increase if any federal appeals are successful. So, like I was saying, she's now 
poster child for anti-capital punishment movement. Activists point out that like many death row inmates, Britney's court costs would be significantly less if it were a sentence to life in prison instead. Texas has one of the highest execution rates in the country. Most death row inmates spend 16 years on average awaiting execution. Wow. Yeah. Formal Randall County District Attorney said that after overseeing Brittany's lengthy and expensive appeals case, it led him to reevaluate his stance on capital punishment, demonstrating how impractical execution for all the but the most dangerous offenders it would, you know, it's... Yeah, like everyone agrees Ted Bundy needed to be executed. Right. But he, he didn't bring up any moral issues, just that it was impractical mm. people spending money. So as of this summer, 2019, 46-year-old Brittany is still on death row in Texas. It's been 21 years since her sentencing, and she continues to be an advocate against the death penalty. And luckily, the death sentences are becoming increasingly unpopular. A.B. Towery's son disagrees with her being able to advocate, though. He stated, I don't want to die before she does. I want to watch her kicking and screaming on her way to the death gurney. I wanted to think about what my dad went through when she didn't even know his name. She is evil and needs to be destroyed. It's like, girl, calm down. Oh, I get it. Like, I, I don't get it. I can't imagine how hard that would be to have your elderly father murdered like that but, would be insane but dude once whoa. she's done kicking and screaming that's it just let her kick and scream and rot in prison for a while right right yeah dude wow like what satisfaction is how are you getting off on this like mm-hmm. i get it. it i mean i can empathize that your dad went through fucking hell yeah and i don't understand we'll never understand the anger you're experiencing but come on that's not gonna bring him back Mm-mm. So that's Brittany Marlowe Holberg's wow. story. What does she look like? Oh, yeah. She's actually a pretty woman, which, whatever. I shouldn't have said that. She's actually, actually kind of cute. <laughs> but now she looks like a regular, regular person. Texas white girl. Of course, her skin. She's been in prison, so she doesn't have sun damage. Right. <laughs> she looks young. I mean, when you're addicted to a substance that alters your brain chemistry and your behaviors yeah you're not in control anymore no your turn so Brittany, man that's yeah. crazy mine is a little shorter mine is the story of margie valma barfield the first woman in the united states to be executed since the reinstatement of capital punishment in 77. Oh, shit. The first person executed since 1962, and the first woman to be put to death by lethal injection. Oh, shit. So. I hope she did it. <laughs> in 1972, the death penalty was eliminated. Right. In a case because what happened was this guy... William Furman was Mm -hmm. sentenced to death for committing a felony and then killing the resident of the house he was robbing. I don't know if he did or didn't, but he was sentenced to death because he was already committing a felony in the process and because there was a felony murder rule. Melanie (laughs) Furder? Felony murder rule. He would be found guilty of murder and eligible for the death penalty. So he was sentenced to death, but it was never carried out. And there were two other similar instances of cases like that with two African-American men who were sentenced to death for rape. And then psychiatrists initially deemed that they were 
what's it, competent to stand trial. However, uh-huh. later it revealed they were not because one man's IQ was below average and he was like in the fourth percentile of his class. So, shit. So that was Jackson versus Georgia and Branch versus Georgia. So those were the cases that eliminated the death penalty. And then in Greg versus Georgia in 1976, it was reinstated when this guy robbed and murdered two men. He was sentenced to death and it was argued that the Eighth Amendment was not violated, which is no no cruel cruel or unusual punishment. punishment. So that's why it reinstated the death penalty where the cases before the punishments did not fit the crime. So the Mm -hmm. Eighth Amendment was violated. So we're back here. So Margie Velma Barfield, she went by Velma. Is it Margie or Margie? I don't know. Margie, Margie. She goes by Velma. Okay. She was born in rural South Carolina on October 29th, 1932. Fun. She was raised in Fayetteville, North Carolina. One of her nicknames is Granny of Death Row. Oh, that's cute. Which I did the math and she was only like 45 when she was... Wow. So, so old. <laughs> Good thing they locked her away. Right? So, growing up, Velma's father was very abusive. He would beat her almost daily. And I even found another article that said he was sexually inappropriate with Velma, too. And Velma's mom never intervened mm. when her dad was beating her beat and her being too. abusive. Probably. She was probably scared. Mm. So, in order to escape... The abuse of her father, Velma, married Thomas Burke in 1949 when she was just 17. That name sounds familiar. Thomas Burke. Thomas Burke. I think there are a lot of people named that. Probably. So they had two kids and were reportedly happy until Velma had to get a hysterectomy and started having back pain. Um, I don't know why she had to get a hysterectomy. I couldn't find anything that said why. Huh. So... Reportedly, this led to a behavior change with Linda, of course. I'm sure having a hysterectomy is pretty traumatic. Linda? Especially, I'm sorry, Velma. Why did I say Linda? <laughs> Who's Linda? <laughs> oh, I typed Linda. I wonder if it autocorrected to Velma. From oh, Velma. yeah. <laughs> Who's Linda? And who knows what other side effects there are to having losing your uterus. God. She also that. started having an addiction to pills. There was some benzos and Valium. So Thomas, her husband... He started a drink, and then Velma's complaints of his drinking turned into arguments. And in April 1969, Velma left the house with the kids. And when they came back, they found the house burned, and Thomas was dead. Ooh. Then a few months later, her home was burned down again, and she was awarded the insurance money. Uh-oh. Yes. So in 1979, Velma married a widower, Jennings Barfield. Less than a year after they married, he died of heart complications. Really soon after Thomas died, she remarried this guy. Hmm. And then soon after they got married, he died of heart complications. Uh-huh. Those heart complications, man. man. They just come out of nowhere. In 1974, Velma's mother Lillian started having intense diarrhea, vomiting, and nausea. Oh. But she fully recovered a few days later. And then during Christmas time that same year, Lillian ex- was experiencing the same symptoms, then died in a hospital. All right, so Lillian's mom died a few short hours after she was admitted in the hospital. And then in 1976, Velma began caring for the elderly as a housekeeper and a caregiver. Uh-oh. She was working for Montgomery and Dolly Edwards. Montgomery fell ill and died that winter, and after his death... 
Dolly began having diarrhea to vomiting nausea and eventually died in March 1st, 1977. The following year, Velma began caring for 76-year-old Record Lee. The name is Record. I <laughs> looked in two different articles to, That's the name. to verify the name was Record. R-E-C-O-R-D. Hmm. So Record Lee broke her leg and Velma started caring for her. And on June 4th, 1977, Lee's record's husband, <laughs> John Henry Lee, sounds just like the name of colonist. Yeah, it totally does. <laughs> began having some similar symptoms, stomach and chest pains, vomiting, diarrhea, and then he soon died. Oh, God. So then Velma started dating Roland Taylor Stewart, who was a relative of Dolly Edwards, who uh... passed away. Velma had been forging checks on Roland's account. Roland. Roland shit. shit. <laughs> on Roland's account. And when she thought he found out or was having suspicions, she started mixing arsenic-based rat poisoning into his beer and tea. Oh, fuck. Mm -hmm. He died on February 28th, 1978, while she was trying to, quote-unquote, nurse him back to health. Uh-huh. And then an autopsy was confirmed that arsenic was in his system. So after the autopsy, Velma was arrested and charged with his murder. At the trial, her defense attorney pleaded insanity due to her childhood, the hysterectomy, mm. pill addiction, like all of the stuff that was on going on in yeah. her life. But it wasn't accepted and she was convicted. So. So she's like a black breed. widow killer. Another one of those. She's a serial granny. Mm-hmm. Later, Velma confessed to the murder of her mother, Lillian. Oh, my God. Also, Velma had took out a loan in her mother's name. She confessed to the death of John Henry Lee and Dolly Edwards. Velma attended the funerals of all of her victims, appearing to grieve genuinely. That's creepy. Yep. The body of her late husband, Thomas Barfield, was exhumed and traces of arsenic was found. She denied she killed him, though. Uh. Velma's motives for the four murders were the same. She misappropriated money from her victims and then tried to make them ill so she could nurse them back to health while finding a job, another job to repay the money. Oh, my God. There are other ways. <laughs> there are other ways. So, this is my favorite part. While on death row, Velma became a devout born-again Christian. Her last three years were spent ministering to prisoners, which she had been given praise by Billy Graham. Oh, my. The famous evangelist. God. They're a joke. Her devout Christianity was to the point that she attempted to commune her sentence to life imprisonment, but the federal court denied the appeal, and Velma asked her attorneys to cancel the plans to appeal the Supreme Court as well. So just cancel it all. Like, fuck it. So, on November 2nd, 1984, Velma was executed by lethal injection at the Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. She released her statement before her execution saying, I know that everybody has gone through a lot of pain. All of the families. I'm sorry, and I want to thank everybody who's been supporting me for all these six years. She declined a last meal, only having cheese doodles and a cup of coffee. Wow. Mm -hmm. I don't know what cheese doodles are. Like cheese nips. Yep. I watched an interview with Velma for a North Carolina news station. And it really pulled on my heartstrings a little bit. She mm -hmm. cited her childhood and pill addiction contributed to her behaviors. And she was the only female in the prison for a while. Oh, no. While she was on death row. 
She was in a cell in total isolation for 23 hours a day. And her cell was right across from the execution chamber. Shit. So whenever she left her cell or was taken out of her cell, she'd pass it. So that's uh, the story of Velma. Damn. First woman to be executed in the U.S. since the reestatement of capital punishment in 1977, the first execution since 1962, and the first woman to be put to death by lethal injection. Whoa. Damn. Yeah. I'll show you a picture of her. That fucking arsenic. How the fuck do people get arsenic? I think it's in rat poisoning. That's her mugshot from 1984. Damn. I was reading something the other day about Black Widow killers and, like, how some of them even, like, there was a young girl who would just go to her high school fucking chemistry lab and steal chemicals before, like, they actually, like, started putting oh, all yeah. those safety protocols and everything. Well, in science and chemistry class, they used to make LSD in the 70s. Yeah. For sure. Here's Velma. She does look like a granny. Oh, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep, she killed six people. To be the only female in a prison, like, see your deathbed, deathbed every day, that's traumatized. That's psychologically oh just... Oh, my God. That's inhumane. It is. It is inhumane. I can't even imagine. Ugh, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. So, that was Velma. Did you see the new show that's on Netflix? It's a Ryan Murphy called the politician i just watched it i watched like one and a half episodes last night before i fell asleep oh it's good was it good it's good it has jessica lange in it Uh, you know yeah yes i thought she was gonna quit acting she says she might be done with tv acting for good after probably after the after netflix is the politician she loves it she loves it that's her thing she's great yeah huh Okay, because she said she was done after Coven. Right, and then she came back, and then she came back. back. Mm -hmm. It's very Ryan Murphy. Okay, I'm going to check it out. Yeah, it almost has that thing where it's like obvious acting, Uh just for more of like a dramatic effect. Like just a lot of weird dramatic shit that normal everyday people don't do, but for the theatrics of it all. Gotcha. It's good and it's so like timely is it a movie it's a series it's a series is it um january jones is it gwyneth paltrow is in it oh i've been watching and i'm behind on this like everything else leah remini's the scientology oh her scientology show about getting people to fuck out getting of people to fuck cult. out and it's just sad yeah it's a cult she was saying that when you try to escape if they bring you back you're sentenced to like hard labor and like no one ever really hears from you again and it's like where's shelly miscavige yeah seriously where the fuck is his wife i th- i don't know if she's dead or if he has her locked away somewhere but she's been missing right. since 1987 and leah remini talked about a time when she was still active in scientology i think she was probably like super young because they were like 12 13 year olds quitting school and going to scientology with their family Shit. yeah have you seen it? I've seen, like, an episode or two. Yeah. It's... I would watch it. She was talking about... They were at a Christmas party or... New Year. It was New Year. And she asked people, where's Shelly? Just, like, she's asking where another human being is. And they were, like, pounced on her, like, don't talk about... Don't ask that question. Yeah. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. And David Miscavige's dad, Ron Miscavige, left 
Scientology. Whoa. With David's mom. And David's still in there. Some people are like, have been part of it for like, and I'm, I always have known Scientology was kind of, I've always known it was a cult and not positive and very I false. knew as soon as fucking Tom Cruise hopped up on Hopped that couch, on that fucking like, couch. Something not right with what he's doing. Yes. <laughs> and poor Katie Holmes, like, she grew up Catholic, devoutly Catholic, marries him, joins the church, and, like, she's, I think she and Surrey are in hiding. Oh, my God. She was dating Jamie Foxx. So anyway. he had her and Surrey in the church, too? I believe so. People have been in this church for, like, 40-something years, and then... They start to question it, and this one lady was in the church for, like, 43 years since she was 16. Whoa. Mm-hmm. That shit's insane. I know. There's a Scientology center in Kansas City. I know there's some drama with their sign fucking up the skyline. Yeah. Which I don't remember how that got resolved or if it did. I don't know, but... I've thought about making a cult. But if I made a cult, it would be like, we're gonna reel them in, and then everybody's gonna be fucking amazing humanitarians <laughs> like right we're gonna turn this fucking car around in my cult <laughs> yep well oh, shit. i've also been watching the golden girls <laughs> i started back to season one episode one and i didn't realize that sophia's character the reason she's so like outspoken is because she had a stroke and it so now she has no like filter Oh. That's why she's that spunky, outspoken old Interesting. lady. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I forgot about it. I just, you know, you always think about Sophia, the old whippersnapper. Yeah. And they actually give her a reason why in the first episode. But they don't really reference it much. Mm-mm. It was that first episode. Interesting. Yeah. What else have I been watching? I watched, uh, of course, The Great British Baking Show. We have a lot of energy tonight. I know. It's just been one of those weeks. Weeks. <laughs> it's been super long and the season changed. Yeah, that's right. That brings out a lot of seasonal stuff. So, yeah. Those days are getting shorter. Mm, it's sad. It got dark at like seven. It's really sad. I hate it. But, you know, we'll get through it. Winter will be great. Winter is coming. I feel like I had something else, but I don't remember. I don't so, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. Um, like it or not, leave a review. Let us know. I know. Five stars if you like it. Rate us if you don't. Whatever. Good and bad. Just give it to uh, give us all of it. Give it to us straight. <laughs> Subscribe. Share with your friends if you want. Take care of yourself. Don't be an asshole. Don't, Don't be an poison asshole to people. Yeah. Apparently arsenic's really easy to come by. I guess. Wear seatbelts. Don't text and drive. Yeah, please. You look like a fucking idiot when you text and drive. I just want you to know. Mm-hmm. You look like a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and you're doing dumb shit, too. Like, swerving. Instagram. Like, oh. anytime I see someone doing, like, they're driving really slow, like, kind of looking like they're going to veer into the wrong lane, it's like... They're on their phone, not paying mm-hmm. attention. I always slam my horn on them. Because it's like, you need to be brought back into fucking reality. You are in your phone right now. You are out of your mind. Wow. But anyways, yeah. I've been Marielle. I'm Amanda. Thank you. 
Have a good week. Until next time. Peace and blessings. Bye. Bye.